our time together today, we are going to be celebrating communion. So if you did not receive a set of communion elements on your way in, if you would like some, just please raise your hand up high, and a member of our host team will be more than happy to bring those to you. Now, one of the things that's true about every single one of us is that all of us, we're always um, looking to find, you know, our group of people. Who Who are my people? Where's my group of people? Who are the people that I can call my people? But see, the danger that we actually find when we do that is that when we find who our people are, we've also defined who our people are not as well. Because here's something that's true about all of us, right? Every single one of us, we all surround ourselves with people who like us, right? That's normal. That's natural. That's something that every single one of us does. But not only that, we also surround ourselves with people who are like us. In fact, now more than ever before, groups of people in our nation, in our world, are becoming more and more homogenous, right? From the way that we look to our life experiences, to our values and and our virtues. In fact, um, this is normal, this is natural, this is something that every single one of us do. But the challenge that comes with this is that this sets us up for something that is known as the fundamental attribution bias. In fact, you learned about this in a psychology class in college. You may have learned about this back in high school at some point. But what this is, this is a cognitive bias that causes us to attribute people's behavior to their character. Right? The reason he acts that way is because that's the way he really is and that's who he really is. The reason she behaves that way is because that's the way she is, that's who she really is on the inside. Now, the interesting thing about this bias, in fact, the way that we know that this is a bias, is because we never do this when it comes to our own behavior, right? Instead, when it comes to our own behavior, we always attribute our own behavior to environment and to circumstances. For example, do you know why that guy at work is always late? It's because he's lazy. He's just lazy. He's just irresponsible. He is lazy, and he is completely disorganized. That's why that guy at work is always late. But see, then you're late, and you've never once looked in the mirror and thought to yourself, okay, you know what my problem is? I'm just lazy, and I'm just disorganized, and I am completely irresponsible. No, see, you've never thought that. In fact, you've thought the exact opposite. What you've decided is the reason why I'm late is because I'm helping my kids get ready for school. The reason I'm late sometimes is because I was on the phone checking in with a friend who's struggling right now. The truth is I am very responsible and I am very organized. In fact, I'm so responsible and I'm so organized that sometimes I'm late. That's how this bias works. That's how the fundamental attribution bias works. It happens whenever we assume that a person's actions are in fact a reflection of what kind of person that person really is, what kind of person he or she is, rather than as a result of social or environmental factors. Now, the way this bias sounds when it comes to the area of of politics is like this. Those corrupt Democrats, you, you know why they're that way? It's because they're corrupt. They're all corrupt. That's their character. They're all corrupt. Those heartless Republicans, you know why they vote that way? You know why they believe that way? It's because they're heartless. They're all heartless, right? I, I've done the research. I know every single Republican is heartless. I know every single Democrat is corrupt. We can see their hearts, every single one of them. But come on, mature, emotionally intelligent, empathetic, 
curious people, they do not fall for this cognitive bias. But see, political rhetoric feeds this. See, nothing divides like politics because nothing divides like fear. And political rhetoric has the ability to kind of grab us by the nose and lead us into thinking and believing all kinds of silly things that simply are not true. But see, you're better than that. And I'm better than that. So let's just not do that. And see, the challenge is, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, is that Jesus wasn't like that. And he did not surround himself just with people who looked like him, just like people who thought like him or who acted like him. And Jesus would not like us doing that either. And see, the truth is, that's challenging for me. And if I'm honest, that makes me uncomfortable at times. And I'd be willing to bet the same thing is true for you as well. And see, listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I would imagine that perhaps one of the reasons maybe why you are not is because of this tendency that, that religious people have or that religion has um, to, to always try to, to create these bubbles of who's in and who's out, right? Like you're in and you're out and you're safe, but you're not so safe. And you're fine, um, but we're not quite so sure, you know, about you. But see, Jesus, fortunately, right, or I guess unfortunately, he challenges all of these boundaries, now today we're going to be continuing in our series called The Kingdom Minority, and throughout this series what we're doing is we're looking at the values that Jesus says are the values of his kingdom. In fact, it's the prophet Micah who kind of condenses all this for us And when he writes this. He says, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Throughout this series, we've said that to ask the question, what does the Lord require of you, is the same as asking the question, what does love require of you? Because Scripture is clear, God is love. And so to ask what does the Lord require is to ask what does love require. Now, last week, RJ and, and Deb, they helped us to how to see, to see how acting justly is actually using our worth individually to restore the worth of other people to lift them out of their shame and out of their dishonor. And today, we're going to push further into this topic by asking the question, how do we actually become people who love mercy? How, how do we show kindness to people who don't look like us, who don't vote like us, who don't act like us, and maybe even do not even have the same view of life as we do? Now, simply put, mercy is compassion and its forgiveness shown to someone else when it is within your power to punish or to do harm. And so when we combine these two kingdom values of justice and mercy, what we talked about last week, what we're going to talk about this week, what we discover is that Jesus is showing us that to follow him means to show concerns for the suffering and the misfortune of those around us and to lift up and restore the honor and the worth of those who have been shamed and mistreated. That is what it means to act justly and to love mercy. Just recently, Dr. Tony Evans, he spoke into how toxic the culture has become uh, around the whole subject of politics in our world, and he said this. He said that uh, until the church gets it right, the culture can't get it right. 
Until the church seeks justice and mercy, the culture will not seek justice and mercy. And so today, I, I want us to, to continue to talk about um, how it is that we actually begin to do this. And, and this is not um, without challenge. And this is certainly not an easy thing to do. And so to get us started thinking about all this, I want to begin by asking you a question. And this is for everybody, right? So those of you who are watching right now at home, you get to play along with us as well. But let me ask you this. Who is the group of people that Jesus got frustrated with the most? Who is the group of people that, that Jesus would most often be pointing his finger at in terms of who it is that they let in or who it is that they did not let in? What was the name of that group? The Pharisees, right? Not a trick question. The Pharisees, right? In the first century, Jesus was very, very frustrated, right? He was even angry at times with the, the, the rulers of the temple, right? The, the people who were in charge of the religious for, formalities, um, th those people who were known as the Pharisees. In fact, this name has even become a term in our world today. If you are known as a Pharisee, this is not a compliment, is it? I want us to hear today some of Jesus' criticisms of, of this group of people, and, and as we do that, I, I want us to kind of look at what it is that made Jesus so, um, so frustrated with them, and I want us to discover what is it that these people were doing that was so bothering to Jesus? What did they miss out on that Jesus would want us as his followers to actually pick up on? The, the first is found in, in Matthew chapter 23 when, when Jesus says this, he says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Now, I want you to stop and think about this second sentence for a moment. Because this is a stunning picture of what was making Jesus so angry. He's saying to these Pharisees, listen, your, your job, your entire job is to be a door holder into the kingdom of God. And when certain people walk up to the door, you slam the door shut in their face. And he uses this, this word that we, we've talked about a couple of times recently, this word hypocrite. Right? But what, 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 it, what was it really? I mean, what was it that these people were doing that made Jesus think that they were hypocrites. I mean, as followers of Jesus, we would want to know pretty specifically what it is that made them hypocrites in, in Jesus' eyes, right? Jesus actually tells us a little bit later on in verse 23, he says, he says this, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. In other words, he's saying, listen, you're just trying to make it one without the other. You're only concerned with what people have stopped doing. You're only concerned with what people have started doing. You're only concerned with what people have given up. Your only concern is what people have done to stack up their good deeds. But by doing so, Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, listen, you've actually ignored, you, you've forgotten about the things that are most important. You've left out mercy, you've left out justice, you've left out kindness for, for people. He's actually saying to these Pharisees, listen, if you would have focused on those things, then all these other things that you're constantly talking about, then those things would have mattered as well. And see what Jesus is doing here. 
is he is setting up a very stark picture of what it is that he values most in his kingdom, which if we're honest is just, it's just not what we expect. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says this, he says, well, it is the healthy, it is not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. Right? The whole reason I'm here, Jesus is saying, is for the people who recognize their own need. The people who know that they do not have it all together. The people who know that they can't stack up any good deeds. And then immediately he says this next. He says, but go and, and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Nothing against sacrifice, Jesus would say. In fact, throughout the Gospels, we find Jesus advocating for a sacrificial way of living. But he is saying this. Don't miss this. I do not love sacrifice at the expense of mercy because I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. And see, throughout Jesus' life, we we would actually see him over and over and over again welcoming sinners to his table. In fact, when the Pharisees would see Jesus doing this, they would scoff at him. They would laugh at him and point at him and tease him and say, look at what that guy is doing. Look at what that Jesus is doing. He's letting sinners sit at his table. Right? And, and this, this is a, a negative term as well, isn't it? But when you think about the people that Jesus was around the most? When you think about the people that Jesus just seemed to clearly be most comfortable with? I mean, Jesus was around sinners a lot. And, and see, that's, that's actually good news. That, that's good news for anyone who feels like a sinner. But see, the Pharisees, they just did not understand this because they were constantly measuring themselves against other people. They were constantly comparing themselves. Everything was relative for them. Everything was about how good they were doing compared to how somebody else was doing, and they just kept stacking up their good works, even mercy. Because for them, the only way that you could even have mercy applied in your life really came down to to if you behaved a certain way. And so at the end of the day, even the mercy that you received, it was all about what you did. Now, another way in the Gospels that Jesus speaks on the subject of self-righteousness is whenever, or of hypocrisy, is whenever we hear him use the the term self-righteous. And the Pharisees, right, they were very self-righteous, right? They deemed themselves righteous. And self-righteousness, it just simply means this, that, that because of my actions, I'm just, you know, I'm just better than you, right? I'm just better. Now, self righteous people don't usually say this, right? I mean, sometimes they do. But it doesn't take long if you're around someone and you kind of begin to pick up on this. And, and see, here's the thing. Self-righteousness, for, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this is something that is so incredibly dangerous because this is so easy. It's so easy for us to very unintentionally, um, very unknowingly begin to do this, me included, because it's so easy to think 
Um, that, that because of, of the way that my family is or because of, of maybe the, the lifestyle I have or maybe the things that I've kind of kept myself away from um, in my past, um, that, that somehow, you know, because of those things, that somehow I'm, I'm just kind of better. Those thoughts can very, very easily creep into the way that we think and the way that we see ourselves as followers of Jesus. And because of this, self-righteousness is extremely dangerous for followers of Jesus. And what makes it so dangerous is what we're going to discover together today, which is that mercy actually comes to those who need it. That self-righteousness and mercy, they cannot coexist because if I have any righteousness in me, then I have no need for mercy. Right? If there is any righteousness in me, then I'm just stacking up my own good deeds. Self-righteous people are unable to see their need for mercy. And when you do not see your need for mercy, you will never find mercy because mercy comes to those who need it. In other words, right? You, 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 if you want to be a merciful person, you have to understand your need for mercy because you cannot extend what you have not experienced. You, you cannot pass on something that you do not possess. It's never going to be important for you to, to create a seat at the table if you don't realize how amazing it is that you have a seat at the table. And so if we want to be people who live in a kingdom that is defined by mercy, then we need to understand the mercy that's been given to us because as soon as we lose that, we actually lose the very thing that Jesus said he wants his followers to go and to learn. Now, th this past week I was thinking about how to try to illustrate all this because if you know, if, if you know me at all, um, the truth is, I, I am a simple man, right? I am a simple guy. I, I need things to be clear. I need them to be easy to understand. Um, I, I need them to be very, very practical. And so I started thinking to myself, okay, what is something um, in, in my life personally um, that, that I didn't understand, that, that I didn't, you know, know about, um, something that, that I didn't even know that I needed uh, until I actually received it. Um, but once I received it, it was so good, it was so real, it, it was so important. I just had to pass it along to everybody that I met because of how much I, I loved it so much. And so I immediately thought of, of this picture right here. Now, you may not realize what a thing of beauty that this is because, see, um, this, this is in fact a two-and-a-half-inch thick, medium-rare, tomahawk, bone-in ribeye, USDA prime meat. And see, um, there was a time in my life when preparing a steak like this, right, medium-rare, would have been completely intimidating to me. That is until I learned about the reverse sear. And see, the beauty of the reverse sear is that you can take any cut of meat, whether it's a ribeye, New York strip, porterhouse, filet, no matter how thick, and it will be cooked perfectly and it will have that distinctive thin, crispy sear on the outside. And see, the beauty of this is I just didn't know. I just didn't know. I didn't know until somebody told me about the reverse sear. I did not know, and I was perfectly content. 
But see, then somebody told me about the reverse sear, and I tried it, and once I tried it, I loved it so much that it just became the thing that I did. And then so now I just have to tell everybody about what it is that I've experienced. And you might be able to come up with your own illustration of this that's probably better than mine. And that's fine. But see, what Jesus wants us to pick up on, right, what Jesus wants us to get is that once we have tasted mercy, you may not have even realized how deep your need for mercy was, but once we have tasted mercy, don't you ever, ever forget. Because in one of Jesus' most famous stories, he tells us about a man who received something that was so incredibly valuable, and yet he forgot what it was that he was given. If you want to follow along, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18, and if you want to follow along in one of the Bibles that are in front of you, or if you want to follow along online and on your device, we're going to begin reading together at verse 23. Jesus says this, he says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him, and since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now, this is one of those things that we just can't even get our minds around, and so because of that, we actually miss how close to home this whole idea was for the people listening to Jesus that day. Because slavery in the ancient world was not like slavery when we think about slavery in the United States. Slavery in the United States was motivated by racism. It was driven by the color of your skin. But in the ancient world, everybody was potentially somebody's slave, right? If if you missed your house payment, right, they came for your house and your daughter, right? If you missed your horse payment, they came for your horse and your son. In the ancient world, everybody was potentially somebody's slave. And so at this, the servant, he falls to his knees, Jesus says, and, and he begs him and he says, be patient with me, and I will pay back everything, right? And again, notice these words, be patient. The servant's master, Jesus said, had took pity on him. He had mercy on him. He felt compassion for him, and so he canceled the debt, and he let him go. He didn't just give him an extension No, he cancels the debt and he lets him go. But see, then that servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him not a hundred bags of gold, but just a hundred silver coins. I mean, far, far less than what he's just had forgiven. And so how should this man treat this person that he just bumped into? Right? I mean, how should he handle this interaction that he's about to have? Well, Jesus tells us what he does. Jesus says that he grabbed him and he began to choke him and he says, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Now, let me just ask a question here. I mean, was he right in doing this? I mean, technically he was. Right? It, it, he was just saying, he wasn't breaking the law. He was just saying immediately. Immediately, I want you to pay back what you owe me. Just, just pay me back immediately. 
Well, Jesus says his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him and said, be patient with me and I will pay it back. He uses the exact same words that this man just used with his master, but he refuses, Jesus said. And instead he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could repay the debt. And the tragedy here, again, especially in the ancient world, is that when you're in prison, there is no way to make money. And so that debt, it just grows. It just compounds. And so the cycle just perpetuates itself. And see, you're not the only ones who heard this story and thought that that's just not right. I mean, in fact, the people in Jesus' audience in the first century, they were appalled at this idea. And so Jesus tells them that when the other servants... When they saw what had happened, they were outraged, and they went and they told their master everything that took place. And how do you think the master is going to respond this time? Is he going to give this servant more mercy? The master called the servant in, and he said, you wicked servant, You you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. And then imagine being asked this question. I mean, think about this. Shouldn't you? Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on on you? In other words, Jesus is saying, okay, somewhere along the line, you you missed something. Either you didn't understand... um, how great a debt has, has been forgiven, or have you just forgotten? Have you just forgotten about the mercy that you received? See, the master is dumbfounded, right? I mean, he, he, how could someone fail, how could someone receive something so great and so incredible and significant and turn right around? and fail to pass it along, right, don't miss this, on such a smaller level. And so, verse 34, in anger, in anger his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. End of story. Jesus just ends the parable right here, just lets it hang. But then he goes on and he says something that for me is some of the most challenging and the most difficult statements in the entire Bible. Jesus says this, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you who does not forgive unconditionally Anyone who asks for mercy. So so what do we do with this? I mean, really, what do we do with this? I mean, hopefully the goal for all of us, right, is to become a more merciful person. How do you become a more merciful person? Well, Jesus is remarkably clear, isn't he? It's by recognizing the amount of mercy that that you've been given. And if you cannot admit your own need for mercy, if you cannot admit your own need of forgiveness, if you cannot admit that at one time you were given a second chance, that at one time you were shown mercy, then Jesus would say it's going to be hard for you, for you to become a merciful person. 
Because listen, until we experience the full weight of mercy, we will never be able to extend the gift of mercy, how significant it was, how undeserving that we were. Until you experience that, you will never be able to pass on to someone else what it is that you have experienced. Until we embrace our need of mercy, we will never experience the full weight of mercy. Because the only way to experience how much mercy you and I have been given is to understand how much we needed it. So what do we do? What do we do with the people in our lives that have wronged us? What do we do with the people in our lives who hurt us, who argue with us, who fight with us, who get angry with us? Let me get really, really practical here for a minute. How am I, as an employer, supposed to demand that people be on time for work? I mean, is it ever okay for me to to look at another person and say, okay, I, I love you, but if you continue to show up late every single day, then you cannot continue to work here. Is it ever okay for our government to say that, no, we cannot continue to provide help in that way anymore? Is it ever okay for a parent to look into the eyes of a child and say, I I love you more than you, you even realize, but enough is enough? I mean, how How do you know? No, I, I'm, I'm literally asking. Like, how do you know? How, how much mercy is enough mercy? How, how much mercy is, is irresponsible? I mean, is mercy just for the people who, who act like us, look like us, and vote the same way that we vote? Is mercy just for the people who get angry over the same things that make us angry? I mean, how do you know? And see, what Jesus says is don't ever lose sight, even when you're in the midst of trying to make these difficult, difficult decisions, do not ever lose sight of the mercy that you have been given. I mean, have you experienced the full weight of mercy? Have you experienced the full weight of what it is that your Heavenly Father gave to you and for you? on your behalf. Because see, the truth is, mercy is expensive. As an employer, mercy is always going to cost you. As a parent, mercy is always expensive. For our government, mercy is very, very expensive. And see, what we as followers of Jesus cannot ever lose sight of is the expense that our Heavenly Father paid on our behalf, when He allowed His Son to give up His life, because that was the amount, that was the weight of the mercy that we needed.
Every once in a while, something happens in our world that allows us to actually see this displayed in the most amazing and, and so many times breathtaking ways. In fact, one of the most astounding that I've ever seen um, took place actually very close to us here in, in Metro Detroit um, just a couple of years ago. And it happened um, in um, the event, an event that every single one of you are familiar with. It happened in the midst of the trial of Dr. Larry Nasser, who, as you know, um, committed some of the most heinous, um, the most tragic, the most horrific acts of assault that have ever taken place anywhere in our country. More than 150 women testified in court to the assaults that were perpetrated on them by Dr. Larry Nasser. Now, one of his first public accusers was a woman by the name of Rachel Denhollander, this woman right here. Um, she's obviously now an adult. She's married now. She's a mom now, in fact. And, and during the trial of Dr. Larry Nasser, um, she was allowed to address him in the courtroom after he was found guilty, but before he was sentenced. And what she said to him that day in the courtroom was absolutely amazing because she did not in any way dismiss or diminish um, how awful what it is that he did was. In fact, I think in many ways he actually added or she added more weight um, to the things that he did. But at the very same time, she, in, in this most incredible, incredible way, she opened up a pathway for mercy even for him. And I just want to read you a small portion of what she said in that courtroom that day, looking across a table at Dr. Larry Nasser. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness, and so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you've read the Bible that you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love. It's portrayed by God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin that he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you had read the Bible that you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. If the Bible that you carry says that it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and for you to be thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble, Larry, you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. 
because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you as well. I pray that you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far, far more than forgiveness from me. Though I extend that to you today as well. When I heard that, I just thought, there it is. I mean, there it is. What, what an amazing picture of the hope and the mercy and the grace of our Heavenly Father that none of us, right, none of us, none of us are ever too far gone to receive the grace and the mercy and the hope of our Heavenly Father. But at the same time, it is a deeply, deeply challenging reminder that this is to be the kind of mercy that those of us who follow the Lamb, that we are to offer to everyone that perhaps the most important question that we could ever ask of ourselves as citizens who live in the minority kingdom is, am I a merciful person? Because I can be right and I can be fair. I can even be lawful. But the question that Jesus is asking is, am I merciful? And the only way to become a merciful person, it is to receive the mercy that has been offered to you. For you to experience the full weight of our need for mercy, And then to let that be the measure of what everyone experiences from us. Let me pray for us today. Heavenly Father, it is so easy, it's so easy for us, it is so easy for me. Um, to forget the weight uh, of the mercy that we have received, that I have received. And so, Father, in this moment right now, Holy Spirit, I ask that you give every single one of us a clear picture of what this means in our lives. What does it mean in our marriage? What does it mean with that guy at work that we're just constantly trying to avoid? What does it mean for that woman at work who just talks and talks and talks and talks and that we just cannot wait to get away from. 
What does it mean when I have to interact with that fem- family member who, who just sees and thinks and, and says things that are just so, so different than what I believe? And Father, I ask, Holy Spirit, I ask, because I know you can do this. You've clearly done it. I ask that in some way, without giving up our values, without giving up our convictions, without giving up any of what we believe, that somehow we would find a way, that you would show us a way to make a pathway for mercy first. Just like you did for me and for us. Father, I ask that in these next few moments you hear us as we personally and silently confess our sin to you. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread. When he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat, this is my body. After supper, he took the cup of wine and he gave it to them and he said, take and drink all of you. This cup, it is the new covenant in my blood. It's been shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin. Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of So take and eat the body of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And drink from the cup that is his blood that has been shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin. And the reason we do this is because we do this to celebrate everything that he has given to us and for us and that he continues to give to us each day. Amen. Let's worship together.